So today, we're closing out a short series, just three weeks, that we spent studying cultural lies. And the idea behind this is that many of the anthems and the principles of our day are simply distortions of the truth. And so the very first week, we looked at the phrase, you are enough. And we studied John chapter 6, which helped us see that our sufficiency comes not from something within us, but it comes through Jesus. And then last week, we looked at the phrase that God affirms you as you are. And we studied Romans 8 and looked at God's love and care. He cares enough for us that he doesn't want us to just stay the way we are, but he wants to transform us and work on the inside of us. So, and so what we looked at is how, he, how much he loves us. He loves us enough, enough not just to affirm us as we are, but to grow us and to transform us. And today, our cultural lie is a phrase that captures our drive to be isolated individuals who need to authentically express who we are. And our lie is this phrase, live your truth. Live your truth. It's probably a phrase that many of you have heard in recent years in a variety of ways. In a movie that comes to mind that I think kind of encapsulate this live your truth mantra is the most recent installment of The Matrix. The Matrix was a series that started back in 1999. There was three movies that were put out in just a few years. And then there's about a 20-year gap. And then just over a year ago, the fourth Matrix was released. And the fourth, for me, was a little bit different. And I was watching this recently with my wife. It was a little bit different because the enemy in the fourth matrix is a therapist played by Neil Patrick Harris. He's the bad guy in the movie because what he's trying to do is take the main character, Neo, and have him embrace this life that he really doesn't enjoy. He thinks that there's something, there's got to be something more to life than the boredom that he is experiencing. And so the therapist is just trying to subdue him and so that he doesn't want to go on and really be enlightened and find the other matrices involved. And at the same time, there's the other main character, Trinity, whose name in the fourth matrix is Tiff. And she's married and she has two kids and she's a stay-at-home mom and she feels like life is just kind of a drag and this is all there is. And as she kind of gets enlightened to the reality and she wants to take the red pill to kind of have her mind be exposed to the deeper truths of what's happening. She sheds her TIFF label and becomes Trinity again. And she leaves her husband and her two kids to go on this life of adventure. And so the therapist uses the husband and the two kids to try and kill Trinity. And she kills them. It's really kind of I'm giving you all the spoilers, right? So I apologize if you're like, wait, I wanted to watch that. Well, you can watch it and now you know some of what happens. So her freedom in life comes when she embraces her identity as Tiff and kind of pushes back against the, the harmful treatment that the therapist is trying to bring. She sets herself free. And so the moral of the movie is very clear. And it's simply this, that society tries to put you in a cage and it tries to subdue you. And it's only as you break free and live into your internal desires and feelings that you will experience true freedom in life. That's the moral of, of the movie. You, resurrection is only possible when you break free and live your truth. Now, this idea of living your truth is not something that's brand new 
to society. This has been happening over hundreds of years before it now today is a mainstream, universally accepted thought. And we could trace this back a number of ways. A book that I read last year called Strange New World by Carl Truman takes some of the thought behind this and traces it all the way back to the Enlightenment over 400 years ago, starting with a guy named Rousseau, who is a, a French philosopher. And he wrote a number of things, but mu much of his influence was on trying to get people to see that the really important thing in life was to look inside yourself. And so the shifting of society was taking place of looking inside yourself for satisfaction and meaning in life. And then he traces it then to Nietzsche, who said the famous phrase that God is dead. And what he wasn't saying is that God just somehow disappeared. What he was saying is that we don't need God anymore because we have ourselves. We're self-reliant and we can take care of ourselves. We don't need God's help. We are in control. And then he traces that idea to an Irish playwright and a poet in the late 1800s named Oscar Wilde, who said this, which I think is really interesting. Oscar Wilde said, a man cannot always be estimated by what he does. He may keep the law and yet be worthless. He may break the law and yet be fine. He may be bad without doing anything bad. He may commit a sin against society and yet realize through that sin his true perfection. What Oscar Wilde is saying, using Rousseau and Nietzsche kind of as the background, what he's saying is that expressive individualism or the ability to express your internal feelings and desires is the only moral imperative for our day today. That's the only thing that you truly have to do. Sinfulness, breaking the law, none of it really matters. There's no moral imperative because there's no God. And when there's no God, you can do whatever you want as long as you're being true to yourself. And so you could trace this all the way to modern day today. And then we have authors and thinkers like Glennon Doyle, who is a self-professed Christian who, who wrote this. She said, I'm not a mess, but a deeply feeling person in a messy world. And I explain that now when someone asks me why I cry so often, I say... For the same reason I laugh so often, because I'm, I'm paying attention. I tell them we can choose to be perfect and admired or to be real and loved. We must decide. And what she's saying is that the only way to really be loved today is if you're true to yourself. If you live into and express your feelings and your desires. That's the only way to truly be loved. Everything else is a sham. And so authenticity and being real being true to who you are, that is our society's greatest aim. And we kind of encapsulate it with the phrase, live your truth. And anything that impedes or holds back your ability to live your truth and to express yourself is deemed as harmful and even sometimes abusive. It is totally rejected by our society. We say that you are the center of the universe and you should be free to live into whatever desire you have within yourself. Now, I, I would say that the Bible has a different message than that. And so we're going to study 1 John 1. 1 John 1, the whole chapter, there's 10 verses. So if you have your Bible, you could turn to 1 John 1. It's all the way to the right. It's past Hebrews and First and Second Peter. 
and it's just before Revelation. So if you have your Bible, you gotta, you got to go a ways to the right. And if you're scrolling on your phone, you got to go a long ways to the bottom. 1 John 1, 10 verses, 1 through 10. John is writing, and he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Now, you may be asking yourself with my whole lead-in on this idea of live your truth, what difference could Christian faith and the gospel make in the society that has rejected truth and made it subjective? It's no longer absolute. It's relative and subjective. What difference could it make? I read this week that 60% of Christians that self-identify as Christians do not believe in absolute truth. They believe that truth is somehow in some way subjective. Now, can the gospel, can John's words, can God's word, can the truth about who Jesus is have anything to say to a society where truth is relative? And John's letter, 1 John 1, says to us, the answer is absolutely yes, because John found himself in a similar place. The society he was writing to, saw truth as relative and subjective and was a pluralistic society with all sorts of religions, all making truth claims. And he wrote to it, and over time, the early church began to become a much larger church and gain influence and make its way into that society. And so John is writing to people in this kind of society where truth is subjective and relative, and he's saying to them, I know you're unsettled. I know the things that are around you in your life make you feel unsure about your faith in Jesus. Now let me remind you about who he is. That's what John is writing about here in 1 John 1. He's trying to reassure the believers about what it is that they believe and what it is that they proclaim, which is Jesus. And so he begins by emphasizing Jesus in three different ways. He talks about Jesus being life. He calls him the word of life. He talks about Jesus as light and truth. Those three different ways where he emphasizes who Jesus is and his work in us. So with those kind of as the backdrop, we can start to work through the passage all the way through verses 1 through 10. And he starts with this idea that we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. In 1 John 
chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he establishes this idea at the very beginning. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it. You might remember back on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day as we gathered as a church, we looked at John chapter 1. And John chapter 1 begins with the statement written by John, in the beginning was the word. And we talked about how John was very clearly pulling us back to what was in the beginning? Well, that was back in Genesis. What does Genesis begin with? In the beginning, God. God created. And so John's drawing this connection between John's writing and the beginning of Genesis, from the beginning of time. In the beginning, God created. And so then in 1 John 1, he uses a similar phrase to bring us all of this together, that which was from the beginning. And so what John is doing is he's drawing these connection points between all different parts of the Bible to draw us into the truth and this idea that Jesus was, as theologians would call it, pre-existent. He was there before he was incarnate, before he walked on earth. Jesus always was. As a part of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Jesus always was from the beginning. And from the beginning, he was life and light and truth. And John says that he's heard about it, he's seen it, and even better than that, he's touched this life, this light, and this truth. He's touched it. Better than simply seeing God at work, which many Old Testament believers would be able to write about. And many Old Testament accounts talk about God at work in a variety of ways. John is saying, I've touched it. I've touched him with my own hands. And this wasn't just like a momentary kind of touching. The word that he uses talks about a sense of intimacy, of closeness, and of connection. And so he's saying, I haven't just heard about Jesus. I haven't just seen him. I've touched him. And this thing that I've touched, I will now proclaim to you. Now, as it relates to our focus today in this idea of living your truth, it's striking to me that John here says not only that Jesus is someone that he's had direct contact, but in referring to Jesus as life and light and truth, he's talking about Jesus as something that is beyond him. That all of those things, light, life, and truth, they're all beyond him and encapsulated in Jesus. And so what he's saying about truth, the foundational reality of truth, is it's not something that is inherently within you. It's something that is beyond you. And John's saying that you can invite this truth and take in this truth within you, but it first exists beyond you. So there is a God that we, John is saying, that we are all witnesses to. But he, he's the ultimate authority. And it's only as we surrender ourselves underneath his authority that we can step into the truth. To say that you want to live your truth is a way of saying that you can meet your deepest needs. That you are the ultimate authority. And everybody else Living their truth has to be subjective to your truth. But I think that we are not meant to place ourselves on this kind of a pedestal, to place ourselves as the ultimate authority of our lives. That in fact, this autonomy and authority creates a burden that we were not created to carry. There was a, a French 
sociologist who wrote a book called The Weariness of the Self. And he talks about the burden of responsibility that we've placed on ourselves for performance and for accomplishment. And how it's a very fragile place to live when you place yourself as the ultimate authority in a way that you perform in life and the things that you accomplish in life that eventually it starts to fall apart. And so he says that the weariness of self where we're autonomous and we are authority has a direct outcome of depression. That that is the inevitable outcome of a life that pursues things, purpose, and meaning through our own authority. That's the inevitable outcome because eventually it all falls apart. We cannot control everything on our own. We who are created often rely on other created things, including ourselves, to allow life to be satisfaction, to be full of satisfaction. But the truth is that the only way for us as created people to experience satisfaction is by pursuing the uncreated creator. We who are created need to rely upon the creator in order to experience satisfaction. uh, Psalm 63 says this well, you satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. It is only the uncreated creator, God, who has made us that satisfies us. And how does he satisfy us? With rich food. He satisfies us well when we truly turn to him and place him as our, our authority. And so 1 John 1 and, 1, 1 and 2 emphasize that we are witnesses to the truth. And we can invite that truth in, but first, we are witnesses. Second, we are all bearing witness. We are all bearing witness. So if 1 John 1, 1 and 2, those two verses emphasize that we are witnesses, 3 and 4 emphasize that we are bearing witness. This is how John says it. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Each of our lives is bearing witness to, proclaiming something. Now, if we live with a live your truth mentality, we are proclaiming ourselves in our own glory. That's what we're bearing witness to, is ourselves. That is our main goal. But what John is inviting us into is bearing witness to the Lord in himself, in his glory, and allowing our lives to be bearing witness to and proclaiming who he is. But one of the striking things about the way that John describes this, he's talking about proclaiming and bearing witness to who God is. Then he says in verse 4, We write this, we proclaim, we bear witness to, so that our joy may be complete. He doesn't say, we write to you so that your joy can be complete, although that's probably true as well. He's saying that by proclaiming and bearing witness to the truth that we've experienced through Jesus, our joy, my joy, is complete. And on some level, like, I understand this. Here I am proclaiming the truth about who God is, and just merely proclaiming it brings me joy. Brings me joy to be able to share that with you. And that's what John is saying. He's saying that the bearing witness, that I have to proclaim this truth. I have to bear witness to this truth. And in doing so, it brings me joy. And so if verse 1 is 
in verse 2 are the message that God has come, that truth is available to us. In verse 3 is about shared life and having fellowship with God. Verse 4 is about joy, joy that comes through that fellowship. And so we can kind of see this trajectory here, that the life of faith that we have is a life of joy. And it comes from embracing the truth, which is outside of us and can enter into us. And as we do that, we have fellowship with God. And that fellowship allows us to then have fellowship with one another. And that fellowship with God and with each other leads to a life of true joy. One of the ways we talk about that as a church is we say that you were created for connection, connection to God and a community of his followers. It's not just a community of his followers, and it's not just the Lord. It's both. And having both a connection with the Lord and with each other, we think, as John says here, leads to a life of true and overwhelming joy. And the Psalms, again, we talked about Psalm 63, but how about Psalm 16? Emphasize this well. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. God wants us to experience through his presence fullness of joy. Now we often get distracted and turn many other ways, but he longs for us through him to experience fullness of joy. And this fullness is found in a mutual fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, that as we turn to the Lord and place him as our authority and want to proclaim and bear witness to him, he allows us to have fellowship with one another, and that increases our joy. So that's it, right? Embrace the truth, have fellowship with one another, a life of true joy. But that's not how the passage ends. John has something else to say. We are all broken. We are all broken. He says this in a variety of ways, but he says it especially in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Why don't we easily embrace the truth that's been proclaimed to us, that's made, been made known to us? Why don't we always step into fellowship with one another and experience the life of joy that God longs for us to step into? Why? Because we're broken. We're broken. And this is maybe the worst part for me about the live your truth mantra. It assumes that what, with, what is it within you is worth coming out, that what is within you is good and helpful and godly. But that is not always the case because what is within you, according to God's word, needs redeeming. It needs his transformative work taking place within us. And over, we, could, we could quote a thousand different Bible verses, but one that comes to mind for me is Jeremiah 17, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? What it's saying is that there's something broken within us that needs healing and needs God's redemptive touch. This philosophy of living your truth means that oftentimes we create damage when we do that. Think about a husband who meets somebody at work and becomes attracted to this person and decides that, you know what, the desires and the feelings that I had for my wife are starting to dissipate, and I'm really attracted to this other person. And so I'm going to leave my wife and my kids behind, and I'm going to go start a new life with this person that I'm attracted to now. 
In our society, that person is living their truth, and they're a hero. They're living into their feelings, their desires. You know what God's word says about that person? They're a fool. They're a fool. They've jeopardized and caused harm to other people by trying to live out the feelings and the desires they have. They're not allowing God to shape them and to form them. They're not recognizing the brokenness that exists within them. They're saying this needs to be lived out to the full, and they are a fool. That's what God's word says about this. This idea of following your heart or living your truth says authenticity and our internal drive and feelings becomes the highest good in the thing that we have to pursue. But what God's word says and what 1 John 1 says is that we don't invent the truth. We don't determine it. We seek it out. We invite it in and we invite it to shape us and to mold us into who God wants us to be. This idea of living your truth is really born out of this idea that God is dead, like I shared about Nietzsche. And it says that we have to place ourselves on the throne of our lives to live for ourselves because we are God. And Charles Taylor, who's a philosopher, has a term for this. He calls it the imminent frame. God who is transcendent has been pushed out. And the only thing that matters in life is what is imminent, what we can see and touch and feel. That is all there is in life. And with this kind of understanding about life, live your truth makes a lot of sense. But now and then, there are circumstances and situations in life that break through this frame, that allow holes to develop in the dome of our lives, where we get a glimpse of the reality of God's transcendent presence that breaks in to our lives. And one of those circumstances in our society, I think, happened three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, during a Monday night football game, there was a guy who made a tackle, just a normal tackle, who got up and then he collapsed on the ground because he was having cardiac arrest. And he almost died on the field. And all of his teammates and even the other team, they were inconsolable on the field as they watched their teammate and fellow competitor dying on the field as he was slowly revived and then taken to a hospital. Damar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills. And you've probably seen his name in the headlines now three weeks later. He'll probably be in the news today because his team is playing a football game today. And so they're going to be talking about Damar Hamlin because of that. He's still alive. They revived him on the field. He was in critical condition for several days before he came to consciousness and was able to revive himself uh, due to many medical workers. But what was interesting to me was not just that this miracle of life was brought back to him, but how everybody responded. A week later, every NFL game happened, including the Buffalo Bills, and every team gathered together, their whole team, right at the middle of the field before the game to pray. The NFL's or their uh, official social media account invited people to pray for DeMar Hamlin. Here is our secular society that says God has no place and no authority in our lives, and yet we were inviting people publicly to pray. On national TV, there was an ESPN broadcaster who's a believer who prayed on national TV, on ESPN. And then I noticed... Uh, an account that I watched with a, a guy who's a uh, sports broadcaster on FS1. And he, he was on a talk show where one of the, his coworkers is a believer and his wife is a believer. 
And this is what he said about his reaction to Damar Hamlin. He said, two of the people, two of the closest people in the world to me, my wife and you, his partner, my partner for years, are deeply religious people, and I am not. And it made me a little envious in that moment. And since then, that I haven't had, that I didn't have that foundation of, I don't want to say a greater purpose or a higher power or something. What he didn't want to say was God. He didn't have that foundation of God in his life. And he realized that as he was watching a guy die on the field, and everybody else is calling out to their God for his provision, for his miracle of life, which took place on that field. He had nowhere to go. What he is articulating is that the live your truth mentality, where we live for ourselves and by ourselves, is fragile. And it breaks down eventually. It eventually falls apart because we try to live in a way that we were not created to live. And that's what Nick Wright, this broadcaster, that's what he's saying. This live your truth mentality quickly becomes a hindrance for the kind of life that we actually want. We pursue it in all the wrong ways. But the life that we actually want comes only through the Lord. And I think John's teaching helps us to see that truth is something beyond us. It's something that we are a witness to, that we can take in and allow us to be shaped by and molded by. And then bear witness to that same truth so that others can know that the way that they're pursuing life is never going to be as satisfactory as the way that it is when we allow God to come in. And so rather than living your truth, what I think God's word would encourage us to do and what I think John 1, 1 John 1 encourages us to do is to live the truth. Don't live your truth. That's weak and fragile. Live the truth. That's eternal and lasting and brings joy. And I think this is something that Jesus was emphasizing well in John 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life of satisfaction, of joy, of completeness, of fullness comes as we turn to Jesus. And it says in the New Testament as well that as we seek out this truth, that the truth will set us free. How we often live, the live your truth, is a prison cell that turns our eyes in on ourselves and makes life all about us, and eventually it breaks down and falls apart. But a life through Christ, who is the truth, allows us to experience the freedom that he longs for us to have. So don't live your truth. Live the truth. As we take some time to respond, I want to pray before we come to, commun the, to the communion table and to invite God into our lives, this truth that exists beyond us, so whether you're a believer or this is your first time here and you don't know who Jesus is, this is a prayer I think that you can pray to invite God, his truth, to enter into your life, to invite him to be your authority, to be the one who shapes and molds you and crafts you into the kind of person that he longs for you to be. And so would you pray with me as we respond? God, we thank you for this encouraging and challenging word at the same time that invites us into the truth. And so we recognize, God, that we turn 
many different ways to find hope, to find life, and to live out a way that feels meaningful and leads to completeness of joy for us. And yet at the same time, we also recognize that many of the ways that we turn to are weak and fragile. And so here, God, right now in these moments, we are turning to you and saying, we want to make space for you. We want to surrender ourselves to you. We want to submit to you as our authority. We recognize that we're broken and in need of help, that our sinfulness impedes our ability to create the life that we long for. And so we turn to you in faith and say, God, we put you first. Through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, covering our sins, making a way for us to have relationship with you for eternity, we invite you in. And whether we're praying this prayer for the first time or for the 1,000th time, God, we, we recognize that we long for you to be first in our lives. So come, dwell within us, shape us who you long for us to be. Help us to live the truth and to allow our lives to bear witness to your impact on us.